to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter. Today's episode was recorded during PagerDuty Summit in 2019. I spoke with Christine Yen, the CEO and co-founder of Honeycomb. If you've ever wondered, what's up with this observability thing I keep hearing about? This episode is exactly for you. So I am here at PagerDuty Summit with co-founder and CEO of Honeycomb, Christine Yen. Christine, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So Christine gave a great talk today thinking about the needs for developers, being engineers, being able to understand their applications, understand their systems. So before we kind of get into some of the technical and practitioner stuff, Christine, you want to tell us a little bit, maybe a little teaser about your talk. What were some of the topics? I love this talk because when folks hear observability or monitoring, they think, oh, this is for ops people. This is for SREs. This is for the folks who worry about what happens after the code gets shipped. And I'm a developer, and I know that to not be the case. Observability is as important, if not more important, for the folks who are writing the code and shipping it. And so I love getting to uh, speak to rooms of folks and tell them stories and uh, show them how they can get there as well. All right. So let's let's take it back a second. So we hear a lot about observability. At least I hope we do. If you aren't hearing a lot about observability, you're following all the wrong people on Twitter. <laughs> and we can give you some suggestions. But let's take a step back because I've heard a lot of different definitions. It's, you know, like a lot of words in our industry, the words mean what, you know, whoever's selling you something wants it to mean. <laughs> but, you know, let's go back in, in your uh, estimation and your approach. What is observability all about? I am someone who likes to go back to basics as well. And if we look at the word observability, honestly, it has to be about something that you can do. Something that you can do in practice. It's got to be verb-based. And so I really think of it as the ability to ask questions of your system, and ideally without having to like redeploy your code each time. The, the word, I think, is really something that Charity found and latched onto because it allowed us to really reflect the fact that the world um, and the, the assumptions of what we're trying to do are different than the monitoring world. Uh, monitoring is still you know, an important part of understanding, keeping your production system stable, but relies on being able to predict what you care about. And the way that the rest of the world is changing, the way that the rest of our technology is changing, that ability to predict is, is decreasing. And so we need to be able to ask new questions. We need to we need to be able to flex with our changing technology and observe uh, the unknown unknown conditions. Right? If monitoring is for the known unknowns, I know that CPU should not, <laughs> or sorry, I know that you know disk space should not uh, exceed ninety percent utilized. Observability is for all the unknown unknowns of like I don't know how something's going to go wrong tomorrow, but I better be able to tell when something has deviated from when customers aren't able to do the high level things that they expect to be able to do. Every time I hear and we when we get into conversations about observability, it, it reminds me of a repeated conversation I had with a CTO of mine 
10 years ago, you know, where we would have an incident of some kind, a system would go down. And invariably afterwards, my CTO would say to me, why weren't you monitoring for this? And I would say, because until last night, I didn't know that was a thing that could happen. And it's interesting. And then when I observed a lot of this, I was like, that's that conversation, right? And and it's, again, it's the questions we know to ask, right? So to me, I feel like observability is, again, like you said, it's the unknown unknowns. It's questions. Because what we can't do during an incident is invent a time machine and go back and throw <laughs> some monitors that we didn't have before, right? right? Well, the thing, the thing that happens, right? Uh, I'm sure this happened at the end of those conversations. Is okay, I guess I will add some more dashboards yeah. <laughs> or alerts to catch it next time, and then it never happened again. And then right, you yeah, end right. up with pages and pages of stale dashboards, you know, artifacts to past failures that that are just never going to matter going forward. It's, that's the sort of thing that contributes to feeling overwhelmed, having too much information, and no answers, and all of that is a, a sign of kind of a broken initial approach, which is we can't predict what will go wrong. And it also goes back to this missing concept of, of not having the understanding that all incidents are unique, right? There's, yes, every snowflake has six sides and there's commonality, but every incident, there's something different about it. And Hopefully. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> the idea of building safeguards based upon what we learned from an incident specifically, because this action happened we will now put in a monitor for the next time. That's assuming that there will be incidents that have that same shape many times. And it eliminates this, this understanding that the edges are rough around that, right? So, like, as we start to understand, you know, our systems are so complex, right? That, yeah, you know what? There was a time when we were running a LAMP stack when you could sit there and you could say, like, okay, yep, there's about five things that can go wrong because there's five connections. And even then, actually, that's probably not even super true, but... It's exponentially more complex today. In many ways, it's like taking the things that we did in the monitoring world and not throwing them out the window, but looking at them through a different lens. When an incident occurs, or let's say you have some very basic API, you expect latency at your API to be below some certain threshold. When you have that initial signal of latency exceeded the threshold, those first few steps are often the same. Right, those first few things you look at, the first few culprits, and it starts to feel like, oh well, this is a this is a monitoring shape problem. Maybe it's the same thing again. And those deviations, that's where it's interesting. And yet, in this observability world, where you know Honeycomb's thesis is, is not, oh well, you should preserve these intermediate steps. Also, they're, hey, let's capture a paper trail of what we did. Let's see what we can learn from that each time. But let's just have a tool that is flexible and fast enough that we can. You know, run through these intermediate steps to confirm and learn, make sure we're on the right track. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much, I've been having a lot of convers- good conversations with folks here today about burnout and people who are feeling stressed out and single points of failure and how do we invest in this thing when everyone is so <laughs> overwhelmed? And it's, you step back and you're like, well, how do you learn and share responsibility normally without technology, right? You ask someone. Like, hey, how did you look at it that time? How did you figure this out? And the more that we can recognize that that's how people want to learn, um, the more and build into our tools the idea that people want to investigate and people want to explore and that there's learning to be done by watching people explore, the more that we can incorporate that into the tools, the better of an experience will ultimately be. So can we maybe... And we don't have to get like super specific product-y, but if it helps for the illustration, that's okay. 
no one will get upset because mm-hmm. we're going to probably talk about patronity at some point on this podcast because <laughs> patronity pays the bills. But anyway, I want to think, you know, from an incident perspective, right? So if we kind of look through, you know, we kind of talked about that paper trail. So hopefully we've got our alerts, you know, our pager duty that's waking us up is waking us up based on some business metric according to an SLO of some kind, service level objective. It's not waking me up because disk is at 90% or SQL Server is using all the memory like it's supposed to anyway, you know. But okay, so this is coming in. So I've got an incident. We started an incident because uh, an SLO was exceeded, you know. So now how do I start using observability practices to go through this restoration of service. I love that we're starting with SLOs and business metrics. Absolutely, that's the right thing to get out of bed for. The thing that we like to think of is when you're investigating something, you're, you're like entering a giant space of possibilities. And a good tool for this investigation will help you start to hone in on the signal, the, the, the possible source of the issue or the, the anomaly or whatever, and, and ignore all of the red herrings. Mm-hmm. In, in old school world, you had a bunch of dashboard user eyeballs to like <laughs> pick out the tiny squares that had the interesting signal for them. Um, with an observability tool like Honeycomb, th- there are many possible ways you can go. Um, you're like, well, is there one customer that, that is, let's break down by customer and compare what's happening there. Let's break down by endpoint. Often, the person on call, based on what's going wrong, will have an idea of the sorts of ways that they want to start slicing this, this problem domain, or this search space. With Honeycomb specifically, sometimes even the search space is so large, because someone's new to being on call, they don't know which signals are important. You don't know a single customer might be correlated to a particular endpoint. Um, we have something we call Bubble Up that lets you actually say, hey, here's, here's this anomalous area on the graph. Tell me what's special inside mm. uh, the selected section relative to everything else. And so this is something that the tool is saying, Honeycomb can identify this looks a little squirrely. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's to help get your attention, maybe. Exactly. Right? And ultimately, you know, we are not in the business of trying to tell you, <laughs> give you answers. Yeah. If you built your systems, you know your systems best. What we can say is, Hey, there's some statistical like interestingness <laughs> over here where most of the points in this area that you said are weird seem to be correlated with this endpoint. Right. Seem to be correlated with this user. Maybe start. Might be nothing, but yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, and it's all about that reducing the search space mm-hmm. so that you can start to be like, okay, is this something where I can stop the bleeding quickly, or is this like a widespread systemic problem? Because that's the difference between okay, it, crap, it's that one customer again. I'm going to turn them off and blacklist them, go back to bed. Right. Or, oh, gosh, everything is pretty down. And I, I could, correct me if I'm wrong, but I could see how that bubble up feature is also helpful to keep us from going down the same, always looking for the same, you know, root cause. And we'll, we can have a whole episode. We're going to have a further, <laughs> a future episode of Page It to the Limit when we talk about the word root cause. But for now, but like, that's a thing, right? Yeah. Where it could be like, oh, this happened. It's usually this, and I'm going to go look in this place I always look, and then when I don't see the answer, I get very confused. But when it is something that's not like the 99 other times we've had this, it's like you said, the search space is really huge. The problem domain is wide, helping us maybe, I hate to say think outside the box, right? That's kind of cheesy, but like think outside of our normal, you know, kind of repeating process, right? Because there is... 
different shaped incidents, right? Yeah, I mean, and this is why I resist so strongly the idea that this is something that can be sprinkle some AI dust on it yeah. to solve the problem. Because any of these incident response situations, it's like a mystery. Yeah. It's it's investigation, it's a diagnosis, and there's there's so much context that humans have in their brains um, to know whether this matters, whether this doesn't, whether it's you know, that, uh, oh no, it's that cluster again. And there's so much institutional knowledge that is spread even across brains. The example I... You know, have, have definitely, it's been a while since I've been on call, but, you know, a couple of years ago, there's an outage, and I was, it was like 5 a.m., so it was just like early enough that I felt bad winging anyone else up, and I was trying to debug, and it was a thing that I knew was affecting our customers. And I knew that, uh, you know, one of our engineers then had been looking into something similar to before, and the ability to start to be like, okay, well, paper trail. What was the paper trail that he might have left? Like, what were the things that he looked at? What cues could I pick up on of what might be interesting, even if I don't personally know where they look? Yeah, I, I think that's that's the thing, right? Because we do the power of our human brain as well as that ability to make intuitive leaps. But sometimes at five in the morning or three in the morning, we want to find that we, we we don't want to make the intuitive leap. We want we want the answer that makes sense. That's like it's the same thing it's been the last few times. So so having something that helps us think, right? Doesn't make the answer. Like you said, the AI would be the yeah, answer would be like, oh, it bubbles us up and bubble up goes, it must be this, so I'll do a thing. But right. really, I like this thought that it's sort of a nudge, like, think about this. You know, yeah. probably nothing. Might be that. You know, I mean <laughs> sometimes we need helpers like that, right? Yeah. To be like, just a thing. Is there also some some help and value in terms of when I'm a responder and I don't have deep domain knowledge in this particular problem ever happening before, it's because again, it's about the questions. Like it seems to me that this is a tool and this is a, a tool, but a practice and a, a space that helps us think of questions to ask. We may not have thought to ask, right? Cause if we can ask a question, we can answer it. Like to me, the biggest challenge is figuring out what questions to ask in the first place. Right. So does this help us ask better questions? Maybe sometimes. Yeah, but <laughs> can honestly, it help us? <laughs> like there's there's a difference, right? Certainly, you would also not want to be sitting around thinking, spending time thinking about the best question. Yeah, and the right question is one approach. Asking enough of good yeah. enough questions is another. Yeah, and this is where speed and you know iteration is so important. Again, as we're exploring this this search space of where is this your cause? I'm not going to say. Like, where should I be looking? Right. What are some um, of the contributing factors? Yeah. Like, the, the ability to be like, oh, well, maybe mystery hunt. Maybe it's under this rock. Yeah. Nope. Maybe it's under that rock. Uh, this, the faster you can get through those hypotheses and rule them out, the faster you can get towards that answer. And it's all about, we spend a lot of time thinking about, well, uh, how can we make things easier for someone new to be on call? How can we make something easier for someone new to a team? How do we help? folks share that context and it's funny that you use the word you know the phrase leaps of intuition because remembering a talk at monodrama a couple years ago where um, someone at don't remember the company someone was on stage talking about how she would watch senior engineers be on call and it would just look like they were making these magical leaps <laughs> of intuition and ultimately an approach could be hey slow down what are you doing yeah. walk me through it another could be okay well you watch them make this leap you see where they go you see where they back up and 
by understanding the, the path they take, by being able to examine that paper trail that they've left themselves, you can learn to walk that path as well. And again, it's not so much of this industry, you build up experience by just trial and error. Yeah. Right? You just experiment, you try, and you see how it turns out. And that's why the speed of iteration and being able to learn from other people's paths are, those are some of the bets that we're placing. Yeah. We, one bit of controversial, sometimes controversial statement that, that, that we've made in our instant command training is that if you can't decide between two equally bad actions and reserving service, flip a coin because making the wrong decision is better than making no decision yeah. because make the wrong decision, you get information. Yeah. And, and so what I, what I'm thinking about is, Maybe this, you know, having observability techniques and practices available to you, it reduces the cost of questions, right? Because answering a question can be very expensive. And I I mean that just in terms of time and effort and everything. So if it's going to take a lot of work to answer a question, you're going to spend a lot of time. I was thinking when you were talking about, is it about asking the right question or asking a lot of questions? Well, if questions are expensive to answer, you're going to want to make sure that the question you pick is the right one, and yeah. you're going to spend a lot of time on that. But if you're like, it's not really, it's cheap to answer questions, then you're like, okay, I'll ask this one real quick. Honestly, and, I think what yeah. happens more often than people spending a lot of time thinking about the right answer, right question to ask is them just being like, screw it, I'm not going to ask any questions. <laughs> I'm just going to make guesses, <laughs> right, yeah. and I'm just going to like flip I'm just some levers, start doing things. And maybe, yeah. maybe it'll just fix the problem. And like that, that is an approach. I've, Certainly, it's been half my career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, like one of the things, actually, our friends at Launch Directly. Uh, described as that by being able to use Honeycomb in their instant response, they're able to guess less. Okay. And, yeah. and make sure that they're doing a thing that actually would impact the problem. And that's, that's the dream. So I'm sold. This is, this is the wave of the <laughs> oh, future. I will make it all amazing, right? <laughs> so how do we get started, right? Because like everything else, I understand transformation. If you're listening, hear this and repeat it. Hit back on this podcast a bunch of times and listen to this sentence over and over again. Start small, iterative change. Do not snap your fingers and be the DevOps. Okay, so if we understand that, we're going to start small. We're going to do things like that. Like, how do we get ourselves into a place to be able to start benefiting from these practices and these approaches? I'm so glad you added that sentence, <laughs> disclaimer, because on one hand, my like very official honeycomb hat would be like, oh, well, we have all these libraries that make it very easy to... <laughs> Certainly. I mean, that's, um, well, I'll come back to that. <laughs> that's not an untrue statement. It's not an untrue statement, and, and that can be iterative, and I'll, again, I'll come back to that. But so many people think of observability and instrumentation as this thing that they have to get right, and it has to be this big initiative, and you have to get all the requirements right, and it has to work across all of your services. <laughs> like, again, if you have sufficiently low pain that you want, that you, you have the luxury of time to do that, awesome. Good. Yeah. Do what works for your organization. For the rest of us, it's like, oh, things are on fire all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I like to talk about kind of incremental steps from just unstructured text logs. Right? Everyone has unstructured text logs somewhere. <laughs> um, maybe they're garbage. Maybe they're not. But there's there's some rhetoric floating out there that's like, oh, logs are garbage. Logs aren't garbage if that's all you have. Yeah. Right? But it, it's so the fact that logs are so freeform means that you can start to make incremental changes there mm-hmm. towards a future that lends uh, itself to faster tools and this, this workflow that we're describing. You start with unstructured logs, you start adding some business entities that you care about, right? Things that let will help you debug and reduce that search space. Business level identifiers. For us, it's always customer ID, data set ID, uh, sometimes like Kafka partition ID. Things that we know 
tend to be important or useful in reducing that search space in a meaningful way. So we start to add those identifiers, ideally in some like semi-structured formats, key value pairs. Then you're like, okay, I've got some, I've got some business uh, identifiers in here. I can start to understand the context of why you know, error 503, like, why that line matters, who it's impact, like who it's impacting. Going from there to full structured logs. Ultimately, we're not in a world anymore where human readability is as important. Yeah. Use JSON logs, use structure, use BSON, use whatever structure you want. Have it be a format that can be quickly and efficiently ingested and retrieved by machines. Mm-hmm. Unstructured text logs are not. Mm-hmm. No one wants to be running regexes during instance. Let's just put that out there. Once you have the structure in place, honestly, you can start to think about this data in terms of analysis rather than, rather than query. So many people think about logs as something that you grab. Oh, well, uh, I don't know how to find the problem unless I know what to look for. <laughs> well, okay. But what if, like, you know, you can start, if you, if you take a step back, you can probably describe signals that your system is behaving handling some requests latency is under some reasonable threshold those are values that you can start to calculate based on processing lots of these individual structured blobs great now we start to think analytically oh, okay request volume or request volume drops that's just counting the number of blobs you can start to build in this build up this muscle of logs are not things that you comb through they are things that you aggregate and look for signals in and from there, there you can go tracing, you can add tracing structure, you can um, reduce the redundancy of your logs, use full events, instead of like emitting you know, 17 log lines per function, you emit one per, there's lots of directions you can go, but taking steps along this path towards better observability of your systems doesn't have to be one thing. I promise to return to the, the libraries I mentioned. Yeah. Our libraries, we call them B-lines, they're things that you can drop into your application and, and can get you quickly to a baseline of capturing common metadata from common frameworks. But again, similarly, it, it, it's not a that's not a solution to itself mm-hmm. because we can only capture common metadata. Yeah. We can't <laughs> capture the stuff that matters to you. And so there also it should be an iterative process, right? You should be like, oh well, I want to add the I want to I want to add customer ID and Kafka partition because they matter to me today. Maybe next week I'll add something new. I'll add maybe we'll introduce the concept of partner ID and we throw that in but instrumentation by nature the same way that tests and documentation should evolve with code instrumentation should evolve because you're going to want to ask different questions as your code code grows up so as we're kind of coming back to this so if people want to learn more some people like to listen to podcasts like maybe people who are listening right now I hope you like to listen to podcasts or else you're just wasted the last 25 (laughs) minutes or reading, or where, where are some great resources for people that want to kind of build up their observability knowledge muscle? We have um, a resources section on our website, honeycomb.io, that contains, honestly, media in whatever form you like to uh, <laughs> consume. I really recommend uh, our white paper section. We, in particular, if you liked my talk today or if this, my description of the talk intrigues you, we have an observability for developers white paper that talks through some of these ideas and how it can benefit um, the development process. We also have a bunch of webinars where we talk through kind of various pieces of what do triggers look like in, in the algorithm world? What does instrumentation look like? And if you're a person who's like, ah, I don't want to have to learn, I just want to play and <laughs> see how it feels, we have something for you too. Um, there's a, if you go to play.honeycomb.io, we have a couple of, kind of nice little canned scenarios where 
Um, one of them in particular, we took data from an outage that we had in May of 2018. We like froze it in time, loaded it into this demo data set, and then basically encoded in a little story. So it'll there's a little like, widget that'll pop up that'll walk you through using Honeycomb to try and address, like, solve the outage or, or you know investigate the incident um, using the tool itself. That's super fun. So one final thing, if there's one thing you could tell our audience about observability, you <laughs> want them to remember, what would that be? It's not just for ops people. <laughs> it's not just for ops people. Christine, thank you for being my guest here on Page It to the Limit. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot. I, I've been reading a lot about observability, but it's great to be able to sit down and ask direct questions. So. Thank you for having me. This is fun. And uh, I'm Matt Stratton, wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com. And you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's pageittothelimit. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.